Uh, good morning, everyone, and good morning for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, if you take your Bibles, would you go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 1? And before we dive in, uh, let's pray. Father, um, we would ask that you would help us in this moment. We, we believe all the things that we, we sang, but we don't want those beliefs to just be a, a set of cognitive understandings. We want to experience you moment by moment. We don't want to just know about you. We want to know you. We want to know Jesus. We want to know life in the Spirit. And as we engage with the Word, um, Spirit, would you work in our hearts? Would you show us Jesus in all of his beauty and greatness? And and Father, would you just transform us because we've gathered, um, we've gathered for that purpose. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let's just start by reading our text. We are in Mark chapter one, and um, the gospel's gotten off to a very quick start. That's one of the things about Mark. In fact, in the passage that we're looking at, you'll hear the word immediately a lot. And uh, sometimes it's, uh, actually immediately is in mind, sometimes it's a transition to the next thing coming. But it always gives this sense of, of action. Mark is a book about action. It's not just here's what Jesus says or here's who Jesus says he is. Look at what he does and then evaluate based on that. And uh, so far we've seen Jesus introduced, we've seen John the Baptist introduced, we've seen Jesus baptized, we've seen Jesus being tempted in the, in the wilderness, and we've seen him um, calling his first disciples, and then we'll pick it up from there. Now we begin the earnest section of here's a series of events that uh, Jesus is involved in as he is preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of God, which is kind of the summary of his whole um, whole ministry. So if you want to follow along, we're in verse 21. They came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see to it that, no, that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the, spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now in this section, um, there's a theme that has kind of surfaced that will set the backdrop. As we look at this passage and understand what Mark is doing, um, we're gonna come to some actually fairly simple questions for our lives for the application point. But in this section, I am sure you noticed it as we're going through, Jesus has come, he's presenting himself as the king who's come to reign. And yet in his revealing of that, whenever anyone begins to get an inkling that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye, he seems to be shutting it down. Don't talk about it, be quiet. Don't tell anyone, right? Whether it's demons or humans, the response seems to be the same, shh. And, and we have to ask, why would that be? That's an odd thing, don't you think? If, if you're coming and saying, here I am, the king you've been awaiting, but when somebody begins to maybe even just get a little glimpse of that, he says, don't tell anyone. That seems to be working at odds. We have to ask why that is. And in asking why that is, that will help us understand this text and where it's going and then understand our own response. Now, there are probably several things going on here. First off, as Jesus comes into the world, the, the picture of the Messiah is a mixed picture. There are more than one dimension to who he is and how he presents. And his first presentation, which is what people like Isaiah were writing about, is this humble servant. He's not going to break a bruised reed. He's certainly not gonna cry out in the streets and he's not gonna create a hoopla, right? So Jesus is not looking to come in with great fanfare. And so he kind of squelches the fanfare. That's no doubt part of what's going on. More uh, practically central is when people begin to understand or at least think they understand who Jesus is, that's where they stop. I think I understand and therefore. And then they start running with their limited information and they write the whole narrative of what's supposed to happen and what they can expect and they, they go off the rails and it creates all kinds of complications for Jesus. By the end of this text, we see that he can't even go into town because when he goes into town, there's a hoopla and the hoopla gets in the way of everything. I was uh, reading a little interview recently by, um, I don't remember which, which organization it was, but they were interviewing Cedric, the entertainer, and they were talking about some of the roles. Cedric, I, I don't know where his personal faith position is. He's faith friendly, I just, I don't know, you know whether he's a true believer or, or some other form, but, um, he, he tends to play a number of pastors in some of his roles, and so they were talking about that, and they said, Cedric, do you go to church? And he said, um, not so much. I tried, but every time I would go to church, no sooner would the service be over than the, a hoopla would break out. People would be clamoring to get selfies with me. Like it, it, the whole tone changed and everyone was rushing over to get a selfie with me. I couldn't talk to the pastor. Nobody could worship. It, was, it, it totally subverted the purpose. People were there. He said, so I just, 
I stopped going. Right now, Jesus is doing miraculous and amazing things, and wherever he goes, one of the dangers is the hoopla will get in the way of what he's actually come to do. And so part of the Markan secret and the Messianic secret is to keep that down. I don't want you talking about me being Messiah because you don't know what that means. You've got all your ideas and half of them are wrong and it's gonna create all kinds of problems so just shh, just watch. Watch and listen and learn. No doubt that's part of what Jesus is doing by kind of suppressing this understanding. There's another thing that's probably even more specific to Mark. Because remember, when we're asking the question to understand the text, we're not asking, what is it that Jesus is doing with the person in the text? We're asking, why is Mark telling me that? And why did he tell it to me the way he did? So Mark is taking these things and he's, he's painting his portrait of Jesus for a specific understanding that he's trying to draw out of us. And that understanding in, in rough terms is, I want you to be thinking about who is Jesus? Exactly who is Jesus? And then implicit in that is, so what does that mean for my life? And the, the book is written to continually reinforce that. In verse 11 of chapter one, God speaks out of heaven. The Father speaks out of heaven and he says, this is my son. There's some real clarity there. In verse 39 of chapter 15, the centurion, after Jesus has just died, says, truly this man was the son of God. Right, kind of acting like bookends. Now the centurion almost certainly didn't know fully what that meant, but Mark does. And everything between the confession of the father and the confession of the centurion is a better or worse approximation and a stumbling and a questioning where people are like, who is this? Who is this guy really? What does it actually mean? And that's what Mark wants. He wants us to wrestle with that. Even when Peter has this flash of insight given to him by God himself, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. In fact, it's interesting, and I, I suspect intentional. Matthew gives us the more full sentence. Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But Mark wants to leave the son of God part out because he wants us to focus on his theme. Son of God is what the father says in the beginning. Son of God is what the centurion says at the end. In the middle, we're supposed to be wrestling. And so he just records the first part of what Peter says, you're the Christ. And then Peter immediately shows he doesn't even know what that means. That's the problem, right? So in that very same conversation, things begin to shift and Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do. And he's like, no, 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 you're the Christ. You can't do that. Here's what the Christ is supposed to do. Here's what your life is supposed to look like. Now, Jesus, go do that. And the encounter is so um, upside down that Jesus winds up calling Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have your heart set on the things of God. You have them set on the things of man. You don't understand. Yes, God gave you insight. I'm the Messiah, but you have no idea what that actually means. And you're trying to impose on me things that don't belong there. Um... The book of Mark is asking, who is Jesus? And then what does that mean for my life? And it's easy for us to get a half-baked answer, particularly because we're actually very, very self-centered. That's fundamentally what it means to be a human who's 
fallen in sin, right? We're fundamentally self-centered. But it, it may even be more acutely difficult now because we're living in a culture that continues to not just express that, but to celebrate that, to make that virtuous and normative that we would be self-centered. Um, I was reading just this week, and a sociologist pointed out that um, in my lifetime, when I was young, in public discourse in the United States, the uh, pronoun I and the pronoun we were used the same amount. There was like a one-to-one correspondence, more or less, right? You'd say I or we just as much because I understood I'm part of a bigger reality and I see my life, but I also see a bigger thing, right? As of just 2019, it's now two to one. We are twice as likely to use the word I as we are to use the word we. Now, we can dismiss that and say, well, okay, that's just an interesting little sociological artifact, but we just look at the society around us and look into our own hearts, and I think, I don't think so. I think that reflects something real and significant and deep. Not only are we naturally self-centered, we're pushing towards that. And so when I come into a question of trying to encounter Jesus and trying to engage with his word, it's very easy for me to bring in all the answers and tell Jesus where he fits into them. Right? That's the problem that is being begun to be highlighted here in the book of Mark. And that's why Jesus keeps saying, shh, don't tell anyone, shh, be quiet, this is going the wrong direction, and yet no matter what he's doing, there's getting more and more clamor, there's getting more and more um, of a hoopla, so that by the time we get to the end of our passage this morning, which is just the very beginning of his ministry, he can't even go into town. Because everywhere he goes, there's people falling all over themselves, but for all the wrong reasons. So I have to come back to that question, and that's gonna be fundamentally the question we wrestle with. Um, You know, what kind of God am I looking for? Am I looking for a God who is made to order, or for a God who reorders my life? A made-to-order God or a reordering God? Which is it that I'm looking for? When I come to Jesus, am I coming primarily for what I hope I can get or for what he's actually willing to give? Those are different questions and they make a vast, vast difference in how I approach him. I was digging through some things, cleaning out some stuff. I I accumulate things over time. I'm not really a pack rat, but people give me stuff and every once in a while I come across something and go, oh, I don't remember that. Well, that's interesting. And and so I was going through something that somebody gave me years ago and it included their written testimony, a bunch of different things. They came to Christ in the mid-70s. And um, I found this little piece of paper in there. If you can see it, it's got a picture of two hands. Right, just two hands held up. Now let me read to you this wonderful little flyer. Use this photograph of Reverend Al's hands for your touch of blessings. And then it says, check your needs, and there's a whole bunch of them, sickness, financial need, unsaved loved ones, spiritual defeat, children's needs, marriage trouble, check, 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 right? And write others on the back, should you desire. I got a lot of needs, my life's a mess, I can write them all down. Then, place your hands on my hands and start expecting miracles to happen. 
And then there's a place where it says, I'm expecting my miracle and you're supposed to sign it. And then at the bottom in big bold red, it says, rush this to me today. And I bet you can guess what the next sentence is. Enclosed is my gift of. And you fill in the blank. Now, I hope that the person who gave this to me years ago, and I, I suspect they did, they grew beyond this. Right? This, is, this is wrong. This is, I, I have no idea what Reverend Al's um, ultimate spiritual state was, but I know at this moment he was completely off track and he was functioning as a charlatan. That is just wrong. And yet, like the Nigerian princess who promises me that she will give me a share of the booty she is trying to escape from the country with if I will simply give her my bank account numbers so that she can carry out the transaction. There's a draw, and people fall for it, and they follow that. Why? Well, because Reverend Al is offering something great. He's saying, whatever blessings you can imagine, place your life in my hands, and they will be yours. Now, for all of the tragic absurdity on that piece of paper, I have to slow down and ask a question that's pretty, pretty searching, actually. To what extent do I sometimes approach Jesus that way? I've got all these blessings that I can imagine. I'm not talking about health and wealth and all that kind of stuff. That could be part of it, but all kinds of things. But I come, I've got the agenda. I will place myself in your hands so that you can fulfill my agenda. That's the problem behind this morning's passage. So we have to come back to the same orders of questions. Who is Jesus really? What does that mean for my life? Am I looking for a God who is made to order or a God who will reorder my life? Am I coming to him for what I hope to get? Or am I coming to him for what he wills to give? Let's look down through this passage, maybe make a few of these things a little bit more alive to our experience, and then we'll come back to those questions. So let's read that first little section again. It actually breaks down, not, not in, a, in a strict and formal outline, but I think the first section, verses 21 through 28, I've, I've summarized in the title of shock and awe. Jesus does things, there's shock, there's awe, and that leads to the next section, which verses uh, 29 through 39, I've, I've summarized by saying clamor and control. Because of this shock they've experienced, because of the awe they're experiencing, they're all clamoring and ultimately trying to control him. And then the last little story, we have somebody backing into the right answer. Somebody who we want to emulate, at least in part. He doesn't understand it, and he makes it very clear. He just kind of stumbles into the right approach. But nonetheless, it's the right approach, and it seems like Mark even wants us to notice that. So let's, let's just look at this first little section. Verse 21, they came to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. They're blown away. This is, why? He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Later on, they said, here's this new teaching with authority. Right? There's something distinctive. The scribes were... Um, 
as much purveyors of tradition and accepted doctrine as they were of the actual teachings of Scripture. They were um, repeating as much the teaching of the fathers as anything, kind of heavily footnoted here and there, and they didn't speak with anything approaching original or anything particularly directly engaging, and Jesus comes in, and he's not trying to poke them. he, He does later. He will poke the scribes and the Pharisees good and hard, but he's not actually doing that now. He's just coming in, and he's just teaching, but he's teaching differently, right? He's talking about things that he understands, and he's speaking of things that they haven't really seen that way before because it's all buried in all this other stuff, and he's, 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 he's not saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so and, and, and the tradition of the Father is such and such. He's just saying, here's what God says, and it blows them away. And that adds to this amazing, this is, this is incredible, this guy, this guy has fresh things. I'm sure that's part of it, but I think, I think it's, it's probably realistic that's actually part of the appeal, right? Even though he's not particularly attacking, his teaching has somewhat of an in-your-face, scribes, kind of component to it, and we love that. There's something fundamental about us that we like controversy, we like negative stuff. We like to pick fights and we like to see people put in their place, right? We, we think we want, to, we want to speak truth to power, but what we really mean is we want someone to talk smack to power. That's what we really like and we all line up and we, we, we just get super excited about that stuff. I was reading a different sociologist a few weeks ago and he was talking about the algorithms that people like Google use, right, to guide us through the internet. Don't be confused that you're guiding yourself through the internet. There's these algorithms that, and and what is it that's guiding us? It's the clickbait. And the clickbait and the algorithms are deliberately wired negative, controversial, critical, because they know we will chase that. That's one of the reasons I'm sure we're so worked up and anxious and at odds with each other is because we have this steady diet of this is maybe true, but it's been presented harshly. This is only partially true, and it is spun. And this is flat a lie, but it all kind of feeds the conspiracy or the anger or whatever, and we just kind of live on the rage of others. I am sure that they had the same dynamic, right? There's a contrarian streak in many of us. You are a contrarian, and if you sit there going, no, I'm not. There we go. We don't like to be told, we don't like to be, and we like it when other people are made to look foolish. Jesus is not being harsh towards the scribes, but nonetheless, there's something that stands out and they begin to look just a little bit foolish. And so not only is there this winsomeness to, hey, there's something fresh and it's done with authority, but there's also this in your face to the authority figures, and and I'm sure that whole thing begins to stir up conversation and controversy, and while that's just being birthed, then Jesus takes it a step further because the next thing that happens is this demon-possessed guy comes into the synagogue and cries out, verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, that's pretty dramatic. Think about that. This is about the scariest thing you can think of, encountering a demon, and the demon's afraid of Jesus. What kind of guy is Jesus? If the scary thing's afraid of him, right? We, we live in a culture where it, it, Satan is very much at work, but 
he tends to try to stay on the down low. Not so much in your face. Cultures where it's more in your face, it, there's a more immediate connection with the idea of demon encounters. So for us, I was trying to think, what, what, how do we bring this to life? And, and maybe here's one example, because I've done some backpacking. I, uh, I have encountered bears multiple times, and bears are kind of scary things. Um, I like backpacking in the Sierras. I won't backpack anywhere north of Colorado because at least then they're only black bears. I remember one, one backpacking trip I was on with a guy who was a total newbie and he was a cop and he was really concerned about bears. So with the group, he turns to us, he says, don't worry guys, I brought my gun. And he pulls out a 38 special, a two inch snub nose, 38 caliber revolver. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. I feel safer than I have ever felt with respect to the bears. I'm gonna stay right next to him because if on the odd chance that a bear does charge us, he's gonna shoot him. And that little pistol is not gonna do anything but make the bear really, really mad. And he's gonna go, oh, that hurts. Who did that? And he's gonna go eat this other guy while I escape. I feel so safe. But if you've ever encountered a black bear, it's just, it, your blood pressure goes up. The California state flag has a grizzly bear. They were hunted to extinction in the state of California in the early 20th century, so they're not around. I don't want to encounter a grizzly bear. They are dramatically, dramatically different order and really aggressive, and they'll eat anything. You know, grizzly bear, if they have a good regular diet of salmon, easily a thousand pounds plus. Their strength, with a single swipe of their hand, they can break the neck of a bison. A bison. Their claws are longer by a good deal than my fingers, and they are razor sharp. And their bite strength because they do have nasty teeth, can crush a bowling ball. By the way, they run 30 miles an hour, and yes, unless they're the very, very largest ones, they can still climb trees. And they're aggressive, and if they're hungry, they'll eat anything. They have been known to actually dig black bears out of their burrows and eat them. Like, whoa. Now I want you to picture this. You're out hiking in the forest and a full-grown grizzly bear locks eyes with you and starts charging aggressively. That has gotta be utterly bone chilling. But imagine as that bear is running full force at you, it suddenly scutters to a stop, squeals, and turns the other direction, running in fear. What do you do? Yeah, come back if you want any more. We don't do that. We're like, uh, you know, I've seen Jurassic Park, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> what is scaring that? The scariest thing they could imagine, scariest thing actually we could imagine, a demon with a malevolent intent turns tail and runs because of this guy. Wow. 
It is no wonder that his fame is spreading like wildfire and everyone's trying to figure him out because if he's, if he's against us, we're in deep trouble. If we can somehow get him for us, imagine that. So when Jesus does these things in the synagogue and he's trying to squelch it, he says to the demon who knows who he is, shut up, stop telling people that. It's already afoot, right? So the uh, shock and the awe begins to generate a response that I've summarized as clamor and control, verses 29 through 39. So right after that, he left the synagogue, entered Simon's house, and Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and so he heals her, raises her up. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he starts healing them casting out the demons. But it's interesting, it's that evening at sundown. Why? It's because it's the Sabbath. Right? He was in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, they all went to engage with the word of God, they all went home, they're very limited on what they can do, so they spent the entire afternoon at home talking about, did you see that, I wonder what's next, and, and they're, all, they're all worked up, and so the earliest possible opportunity, because the Sabbath begins from true sundown on Friday night and ends at true sundown on Saturday night, and they had an exact way of telling when that was, one second after that you were free, and they all make a beeline for the door where he is, and they want to see this power at work and they want to benefit from what Jesus is able to do and so they just line up and he's casting out demons and he's healing sickness and it's going on for hours. Mark doesn't tell us he doesn't have to. The whole city is there. They have stayed far later than is polite. They have stayed, in fact, to the absolute latest moment you could possibly stay without violating every conceivable moray or perhaps even in past that, and they're just about to go unconscious and fall over, so they finally go home. It is exhausting. Jesus has spent the entire night till late, late into the night healing people, and then look what he does. The very next thing he does, verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Just a little aside from the example of Jesus that's helpful for us. Right, the, 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 the storm is whipping up around him. The chaos of all this expectation and all of this energy and all of this questioning and all of this demand is just being stirred. Jesus, though he fully is God, is functioning in his humanity and he needs time to be with his Father to center himself and know what he's supposed to do next, so he looks for the eye in the storm, and he has to fight for it. He gets up very early before dawn to find a place where he can connect with his father. That's a a helpful illustration to me, because if Jesus struggles for that, it's no wonder that I do. But the question is, am I struggling for that? I need to really keep looking for the eye in whatever storm I happen to be in, whether it's just a storm of busyness, or a storm of trauma, or a storm of challenge, or whatever. Life gets whirling around me. I need to periodically find the eye and really connect with God. Jesus goes to do that, and the storm catches him. Look what happens. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Probably very early. It doesn't say, but we know how something like this goes. People went home the night before because they had to. There was absolutely no other option. 
they beat a trail to the door at the earliest possible moment. Simon gets up in the morning and in his front door is a crowd. Half the city is there waiting and looking for Jesus to do something fresh. And Simon is like, I don't know where he is. There's a crowd here. They have these high expectations. Ah, what do I do? And, and it says that Simon and the others who were with him searched for Jesus. And that word's actually a pretty strong, vigorous kind of a, a, a it means they're, they're aggressively searching for Jesus. They're scouring for Jesus. It's really important that we find Jesus because of all these people. Now, it's, it's one of those inflection points that you kind of wish you had sometimes. If you're trying to start something new, you got to start up like a startup company, or in this case, a startup ministry, right? Here's your moment. Ed Sullivan just put you on the show, and these guys from England, you go, oh, they're kind of cool, and boom, suddenly it crosses the Atlantic, and the Beatles... Right, there's these moments, and here's that moment when Jesus' ministry is just exploding and everyone wants to be there, and his earliest followers, that's gotta be pretty cool, but they're also under a fair amount of stress, so they go looking to find him, and when they find him, they say, look, everyone's looking for you, and Jesus immediately says, we aren't going back. We gotta go somewhere else, because they didn't come to do that. Jesus is living mission first, which is, not easy to do. It's not easy to do. That's part of why he needed to recenter himself and make sure that he was aligned fully with the Father. Not that he couldn't have been, by the way. A little bit of theology. Jesus would never have stepped outside of God's will, but he does the things effectively to make sure that he stays there. And it's God's will that he do a mission that incorporates some healing in Capernaum and a whole lot of other stuff. And it's easy for everyone else's expectations to drive our lives. Sometimes we overfunction because we're more concerned about everyone else's expectations and not listening for God's. And we don't want to disappoint them or we want to silence the voices in our own mind, the interject that we have there and feel good. And in the process we're actually Missing out. Jesus does the hard thing. He says, yeah, sorry, we can't stay. It's not about the hoopla. And yes, there are real people with real needs that it would be really good to meet, but there's a bigger, bigger thing going on here, and I've got to stick with what God's got. And so he moves out. But in doing that, there's one other thing that's subtle, but it's there that Mark has given us that helps us understand not just, hey, the mission's out there, but there's also a danger Verse um, 37, when Peter and the others find him, it says, everyone is looking for you. There's multiple words that he could have used there. The particular word he uses there for looking, he uses 10 times in the Gospel of Mark. Every single one of them is negative. Every single time he uses this word, it's in a negative context. I think it's a subtle way for him to say, yeah, they're looking for him, but don't just take that at face value. There's a clamor and there's a desire to control. They want to shape Jesus according to their desires. And he's not gonna let that happen. And so he moves on. Now the final story we have here, um, we find somebody who is ultimately just as clueless, but somehow backs into the right answer. 
Start in verse 40 with me, if you will. It says, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Now that's really important because it, it slows down, it gives us something in quotes, and it's a direct repetition. Apparently Mark is not just giving us a detail, he actually wants us to pay attention to the nature of the interaction. The, 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 the leper comes and he has a desire from Jesus, and he's actually quite bold. The leper is actually a wonderful model up to this point. Later on, he goes off the rails and it's clear he doesn't understand what he's doing. He accidentally backs into it, but he's exactly the way we should be approaching God. He comes very boldly, right? He comes up to Jesus. He should have stayed at least 50 paces away. He should have covered his face. He should have looked down. He should have called out, I am unclean. And he ignores all of that. He comes right up to Jesus. He throws himself on the ground in front of him and he begs him. There's a lot of boldness and a lot of courage displayed right there. We need to be bold with God. We need to courageously ask and seek. We need to bring our needs to him and our concerns and whatever's going on inside of us. Even if it's off base, it's not helpful for me to pretend it's not there. God knows it's there. I need to bring that into his presence. But as I come into his presence, here's the important shift. The beggar understands intuitively, or he just backs into it because he's been so beaten down by the culture. I can't just tell him what he has to do. I need to bring myself under. If you will, you can heal me. That's it. That I would come boldly to God, but that I would come back to that, that perspective. If you will. I know you have the power. I know I'm supposed to present my desires in my heart, but what do you want? How good are you at telling God what he must do? I'm pretty good. I've refined those skills pretty well. Here's what needs to happen, and here's how it needs to happen. And it's not completely wrong. There's an aspect of being bold and asking, but something shifts in our hearts, mine, or I'm not like this, this leper at all. I'm not saying if you will. I'm saying here's what I will now. Go and make it so. But this leper doesn't do that. He gets it right, even though he obviously doesn't know what he's doing because, because the very next thing, Jesus says sternly, do not tell anyone. And he immediately goes out and tells everyone. He goes hanging out in the local pub or whatever and says, hey, let me tell you what happened. And it just gets worse. It gets so much worse, the hoopla, that Jesus can't even go into the towns because of this. And this is a direct result of what happens with this, this leper. right? He, he came and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. That's, that is my will. You can be clean. But then Jesus went on to say, oh, by the way, my will is also that you would be quiet. Be clean, but be quiet. And the leper says, I'll be clean. Thank you very much. And then he goes off and goes back to my will. Right, so he obviously still doesn't get it. Like everyone else between the confession of the father and the confession of the centurion, they're all stumbling around looking for it. But in this moment, probably very much by accident of circumstance, he actually does it right. And he comes boldly and humbly 
And he realizes, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Coming back to our questions. Am I looking for a made-to-order God that just perfectly fits? Or am I looking for a God who will reorder my whole life? May even blow it up and rebuild it in a whole different direction. I can't do both. One's leading nowhere. And yet it's the one that I so easily do. I've got to manage my expectations with God to where I have space, regular space, to say, here's what I want, but can we just stop and talk for a minute? What do you want? Do you have anything to say? Am I off base here? Help me to be responsive. Help me to be attentive. Transform me. I wonder how often our expectations of God blind us or even cause us to miss out in some ways on what he would actually do. I remember this is kind of a silly little story, but it really stuck with me. Growing up, we were very working class, didn't have um, like poverty issues, but life was challenging and at times it's like, okay, we're more beans and rice than much of anything else kind of seasons. And I remember one time, my dad, I was, I was early teens, my dad turned to my mom and said, do we have some hamburger? Because um, the traditional family from back in the day and you wouldn't want to trust my dad anywhere near a kitchen because that was disaster, right? So can you make me some hamburger, please? I'm hungry. So she goes to the freezer and comes back with the most shocking statement I had ever heard, I think, at that point in my life. She says, we don't have any hamburger. We do have filet mignon. <laughs> we never had filet mignon. I have no idea how that happened. Santa came in and stuck it on our freezer because we were good boys and girls. I don't know. You know what? My dad was really disappointed. Oh, I wanted hamburger. Right? And it wasn't like extra lean, you know, prime, whatever. It was probably 78% fat and 32% water and three little strips of cow. Right? It wasn't good hamburger even, but he had this expectation. In fact, partway through, he was, he was kind of processing his disappointment. He said, well, now, wait a minute. Listen to me. <laughs> I could have steak. I could have really good steak, and I want hamburger. That, that, that struck me just at a really street level, and I think it's kind of stuck with me even as I was thinking of this passage. It's like, oh, yeah. How often do I say, God, can I have some hamburger, some cheap, crummy hamburger? And he's got, I've got top-of-the-line filet mignon, and I'm like, I want that. How often do my expectations stumble me in my relationship with God? Are you coming to God for what you hope to get or for what he wills to give? Still trying to have that made to order God or you're letting him reorder your life? Reverend Al, Reverend Al promises me that whatever blessings I can imagine, I will have if I will place myself in his hands. Reverend Al will certainly fail. Jesus comes along and he says, whatever blessings I can imagine, I will give to you 
if you'll place yourself in my hands. And he absolutely cannot fail. So the ultimate question this passage is asking us is whose hands am I placing myself in? And don't be fooled by editing God in a particular way and then say, okay, I'm in. That was the problem. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We'll take our offering. Lord, I, uh, I'm grateful for your grace in my own life and for your patience. Thank you. Help me not to try, try to always tell you what to do. Help me to regularly come and say, what will you do? What is your will? Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we would engage, we would engage vividly and passionately, that we would come boldly and we would say what's on our hearts, what's on our minds, we would ask. But I ask that at the center of that, we would always keep coming back to, yeah, but what is it that you want? If you are willing, and know that you will be willing, so often you will be so willing to say, yeah, that's a great idea, let's do that. And that sometimes you won't. May I not try to make you that made-to-order fit the particular hole in my life kind of God. But may I instead be willing for you to reorder me. That's our prayer this morning, Lord. If there are things that we need to surrender or wrestle through, I pray that you'd help us do that. Lord, I thank you for the chance to support your work in this world, and I pray that you would use this offering for that purpose, that it would lift up the name of Jesus, and that it would make a difference in people's lives, what happens because of these gifts. And I pray that you'd bless everyone who participates. And bless us as we worship you. May we do so with integrity and intent. In Jesus' name, amen.